You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Over the last 50 years, our society has seen rapid changes in the areas of gender, sexuality, and family. Feminism gave way to easy divorce. Uh, Easy divorce gave way to sexual revolution. Sexual revolution gave way to homosexual revolution. And currently, homosexual revolution is giving way to transgender revolution. But as our society redefines these foundational concepts that really had been pretty much unchanged across all societies since the beginning of human history, I think we owe it to ourselves to ask, what does God have to say about these matters? And that's what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. And today we're going to see four points. First, we're going to see that Jesus is opposed. Second, we're going to see Jesus on gender and marriage. Third, and our longest point, will be Jesus on divorce. And then fourth, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about singleness. So without further ado, let's jump into our first point in which we see that Jesus is opposed. And as we begin today, if you've got a Bible, please turn to Matthew 19. As we begin today, Jesus has just finished his sermon in chapter 18 about the community of the local church. And now we read in chapter 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, at first, we might want to breeze past this to get to the juicy stuff, but this is a really significant moment in this book because most of Matthew has taken place in the region of Galilee. That's where Jesus has been ministering since, like, chapter 4. But now Jesus is leaving Galilee, and he's not going to return until after his resurrection. Now Jesus heads to Jerusalem to fulfill the Father's plan, which we heard about back in chapter 16, that Jesus must go to Jerusalem, And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus heads off to die for our sin. And as he does so, we read in verse 2, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So probably what's happening here is as Jesus goes through the regions on his way to Jerusalem, the folks there have heard about Jesus and they come out to see him because they need to be healed. And Jesus compassionately heals them. But while these crowds come to Jesus for healing, another group approaches with a different agenda. Look at verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now the Pharisees have been opposing Jesus back since chapter 9. And now we've got some more Pharisees coming to face off with him. And this group also wants to discredit Jesus. And they hope to do this by debating Jesus about divorce. Now, these Pharisees probably thought that divorce was a favorable topic for them to debate Jesus about. Because during this decade in Jewish history, there was a huge debate among the Pharisees about the topic of divorce. And so these guys probably would have been very well versed in all of the arguments on this debate. They think, oh, whatever Jesus says, we know the answers. So they think that they've got him on their home turf. Now, the debate within the Pharisees was waged between two camps. One camp was called the School of Shammai, 
and they were pretty restrictive about divorce. They said, a husband can divorce his wife. Wives were never allowed to divorce their husbands, according to the Pharisees. But a husband can ditch his wife only if she's guilty of adultery. But while they were restrictive about divorce, they were permissive about remarriage. They said anybody who got divorced for any reason could remarry. That was one camp. The other camp was the school of Hillel. And they were very permissive about both divorce and remarriage. They said a husband could divorce his wife if he disapproved of anything in his wife concerning her health or her appearance or even if she burned his dinner. That's grounds for divorce, basically any reason. Now, this was the big debate in Pharisaic Judaism at the time. And these guys want to draw Jesus into it. And it isn't hard to see what they're planning. They figure Jesus will take one of these sides, and they know all the arguments on both sides, so then they're going to hit him with everything in the opposite position, right? Now, I think that what we see here is something that Christians are experiencing broadly across the Western world today. And it's this. Our world stands against Jesus... It does not want to hear the truth that Jesus is Lord or that we should submit to his word. And our world is looking for an excuse to malign the truth and to reject the gospel. And one way the world does this is it uses controversial issues like divorce in Jesus' day or sexuality and gender issues in our day. And you know, the world's got its own false ideas about these things. And they want God's people to conform. Conform, conform, conform. And if we say, no, we've got to be loyal to Jesus, then they're going to malign us for not conforming to their lies, and then they're going to use that as a pretext to persecute us. It's exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do to Jesus here. And it's the same thing we see today. But friends, we need to remember two things. First, Jesus says this in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The opposition that believers face today isn't really because we hold some particular stance about sexuality or marriage. In the end, the real reason that there is antagonism between the world and the church is because God's people belong to Jesus, because we believe in the gospel, and the world hates Jesus and his gospel. That's always why persecution comes. But second, we need to remember Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The world may hate God's truth, but in the end, the world's wicked lies will be exposed and God and his truth will triumph in Christ. So even though Jesus was opposed and even though we will be opposed over the controversial issues of our day, we've got to expect that opposition and we've got to stand firm because Jesus will prevail. All right, but now we come to our second point in which we see Jesus on gender and marriage. The Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce but as Jesus responds, he starts talking about gender and marriage. Look at verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? When the Pharisees debated, they loved to quote from rabbis from the past. And they always wanted to quote a rabbi who predated the rabbi that the other guy was citing. Because their rule was, the oldest 
is the most authoritative. Well, here Jesus doesn't quote any rabbis, but he quotes God's word. And what he quotes goes back beyond the earliest rabbi. Jesus points back to creation. So he's got the best, he's got the trump card in this debate. And Jesus cites Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. They say, well, why does Jesus go here when he's being asked about divorce? Because divorce has to do with marriage. And so to answer the question about divorce, Jesus has to establish a foundation of a right understanding of marriage. And Jesus does that first by pointing to the creation of humanity. And specifically what Jesus points to here is the sexual differentiation of men and women. Now, this was a totally uncontroversial issue in Jesus' day. But in our own time, this has become an incredibly controversial topic, hasn't it? Because today, transgender advocates say that terms like men and women are social constructs that don't have any objective meaning. Friends, that is a denial of reality because the biological sexual binary of male and female is hardwired into our chromosomes. God has distinguished us between two sexes, and those sexes define our identities and speak to our behavior. In other words, our biological sex controls our gender. It defines our gender. We see this in nature, in the animal kingdom. Males and females behave differently. They behave in line with what they are. In most cultures throughout history, humans have intuitively understood that our bodies indicate our identities and that we function as men or women depending on our anatomy. And the Bible likewise reveals that God intends a different purpose for men and women in the home and in the church. Friends, the truth is there are only two genders and those genders are dictated by our biological sex. Now, today, transgenderism says, no, 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 gender is unhitched from sex. You may be biologically female, but inwardly, you may feel like something other than what your body says you are. And transgenderism says that if that's the case for you, the problem's with your body, it's not with your mind. And that you should alter your body, anatomically or chemically, to give life to your inner feelings. As an aside, it's very interesting that this notion has taken such hold in our society. Because for a long time, our society said that it subscribed to a materialistic view of reality, that the only thing that was real was matter. But now on this issue, people want to reject material reality. They want to reject the reality and primacy of the body. And they're giving primacy to a metaphysical claim that what is immaterial, your subjective feelings are what's real. This contradicts the worldview that our culture has been trying to shove down our throats for a hundred years. But we shouldn't be surprised that the world's lies are incoherent because Satan's domain is filled with chaos. However, the truth is this. God has differentiated humanity into two sexes that correspond with two genders, which are absolutely equal in worth, but different. Those who are males are men and should comport themselves as men. And those who are females are women and should comport themselves as women. Now, our culture primarily defines manhood and womanhood by our interests. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there seems to be this idea that all men like camping and football and fighting. And that women like shopping and cooking and makeup. 
Okay, when I say that, the, that gender is real, I'm not saying that we should subscribe to our culture's notion of how we understand gender as being driven by our interests. That's not a biblical distinction. Biblically, manhood and womanhood is not about our interests. It's about how we relate to God and how we relate to other people. It's about living in line with what God has made us to be as embodied image bearers of God. Okay? We are all to worship God and obey His word. We are all to live in line with the truth of who we are as God has determined our sex. We are not to adopt provocative, gender-bending fashion or acting sexually contrary to who you truly are. Fulfilling the roles that the Bible's prescribed for you in your family and in your church, that's biblical manhood and womanhood. Okay, so God has created the gender binary. And God has decreed that not just to be good. In Genesis 1.31, God has decreed that to be very good. And so the world's opposition to the gender binary is not good, it is evil. Now, having pointed the Pharisees back to the creation of humanity and our sexual difference, Jesus now goes on to show why we have been differentiated as he starts talking about the institution of marriage. And it's difficult to overstate the importance of marriage. I think a lot of people these days have a very low view of marriage. You know, it's like uh, it's an outmoded social custom. Or if you've had the misfortune to watch this TV program called 90 Day Fiance, you would know that many people see marriage as a means of getting citizenship or getting a tax break or whatever. Okay, that attitude is a sickening diminution of the truth, which is that marriage is a big deal. Marriage is the first and most basic human community. In fact, marriage and work are the only two human institutions that existed prior to the fall. And Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, a picture that foreshadows the end of history when God will dwell with his people forever. Marriage was a huge part of God's design for humanity. And friends, as God is the inventor of marriage, he gets to define it. And he does so in Genesis 2.24 which Jesus now quotes. Look at Matthew 19, verse 5. And Jesus said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. The Bible tells us that marriage has two elements. There is one man and one woman, not any other combination of people. And this one man and one woman come together by making three moves. First, they forsake what had been their primary allegiance, their previous allegiance to their own parents. Second, they form a new primary allegiance towards one another. And third, a union is formed. The man and his wife become one flesh. Now, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that union is the result of sex. And indeed, at this point in creation, God introduced human sexuality into the context of marriage. And this is very important, friends, because this tells us that sex is properly and permissibly exercised only within the context of biblical marriage, that is to say, of heterosexual monogamous marriage. And sex binds the husband and wife together. But being one flesh is about more than just having sex. This union brings about a closeness and a shared common life between the spouses. And friends, 
we're going to see in just a second, God intends that union to last as long as both spouses live together. Now, well, as long as they're both alive. Okay. Um, now, I've got to be really careful with all of this, right? Now, I've got to tell you, I think marriage is about to become a really controversial issue in our society again. Not because there's going to be a revisiting of the question of homosexual marriage. Friends, that ship has sailed. I think the coming battle is going to be about polygamy. But marriage, just like gender, has generated controversy in our society. And I've got to tell you, that's not because these concepts are hard. It's not because there's a bunch of ambiguity and difficulty in discerning the truth about these things. Friends, the truth about gender and marriage is obvious. It is testified to in nature and in God's word. The problem is the deceitfulness of sin. Humanity is fallen. And in our fallenness, Psalm 2 says, we foolishly war against God. We want to cast off the constraints that God has put on us. And so we reject God's good design. We pervert God's good order. We pervert gender and we pervert sex and we pervert marriage. And friends, this is grievous and destructive. People say it's freedom. But James 1.15 says, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin kills. It kills now, and we shouldn't be surprised to hear this. Right? The world wants to pretend that sexually enlightened people, quote unquote, pursuing alternative lifestyles are happy and healthy. I'm going to tell you, friends, there is lots of evidence to the contrary of that. Just look at the recent monkeypox outbreak, right? Look at the terrible suicide rates for people who are gender confused or living in homosexuality. Friends, sin kills now, and sin threatens to kill forever. Just as our sins, no matter what they were, were killing us before we came to Christ. Friends, true liberation and peace can be found only in Jesus, in trusting in Him, and in obeying His word. Now, friends, I know that because of social pressures or family pressures, many of us may feel pressured today to deny Jesus' lordship in these areas and to cave in. We must not do so. Isaiah 5.20 says, woe, that, and remember we said last week, woe means like judgment's coming. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. If we belong to Christ, we need to speak the truth. We need to believe the truth, we need to speak the truth. Not to further some political agenda, not because we want to vent our self-righteousness. No, we've got to speak the truth in love, out of a sincere concern for those who are heading for ruin. Ephesians 4.25 says, Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We've got to hold the truth and speak the truth about gender and marriage, reflecting the will of God and calling on people to repent and believe in Jesus. All right, but now we come to our third and our biggest point, which is Jesus on divorce. Now that Jesus has talked about gender and marriage, he's laid a foundation from which he can start to answer the Pharisees. And he does that beginning in verse 6. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, so marriage is a union in which God joins one man to one woman for one lifetime. And what God joins like that, people must not undo. So the general rule Jesus gives here is that divorce is not acceptable. And this should not be a surprise, because Malachi 2.16, properly translated, says, The Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce. 
That is God's thought on divorce. He hates divorce. And so the people of God ought not ordinarily pursue divorce. Now, some of you are looking at me like, I know there are exceptions. We'll talk about them later. But I want you to see here, Jesus' first line of response is very restrictive about divorce. And if you look up other passages where Jesus' view on divorce is discussed, you'll see they're just as restrictive as this in Mark 10 and Luke 16. And even listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. He says, this is what Jesus taught. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Neither spouse, and that's different from the Pharisees' view, right? That said only the man, the man could seek divorce. But here Jesus says, neither spouse should seek divorce, because divorce is contrary to God's intent for humanity. Now, Jesus' answer shocks the Pharisees. They probably thought Jesus was going to say, well, I'm with the school of Shammai, or I'm with the school of Hillel. Jesus doesn't do that. He rejects both of the Pharisaic approaches. And instead, he puts his own answer down, which is more restrictive about divorce and remarriage than either of the Pharisaic approaches. And the Pharisees immediately push back, because while the Pharisees like to debate in-house about what are the grounds for divorce, they never questioned whether divorce was itself permissible, because they thought the law of Moses already said that it was. Now, when Jesus says that generally divorce is not permissible, the Pharisees come back with this attack. They say to Jesus, well then, you are contradicting Moses. Now, what they mean by that is they're going to say, Jesus, you are contradicting the law, you are contradicting God's word, and you are therefore contradicting God's will. That's a big charge, right? But let's see what happens. Verse 7, here they say to Jesus, they said to him, here's their challenge, why then, if, if you're, what you've said is true, if divorce is not normally okay, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? The Pharisees say the Old Testament law had instructions for carrying out divorce. And if that's what the law says, if that's what God told Moses, then Jesus, how can you say that God is not okay with divorce? Well, Jesus explains. Look at verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus says, yes, Moses permitted divorce. But what Moses permitted is not what God originally intended. Now, if like me, you have a high view of scripture, this probably raises a bunch of red flags for you. Because don't we believe 2 Timothy 3, that all of scripture is inspired by God? Is Jesus here saying that Moses gave a command that God didn't stand behind? That Moses made up some part of the law without God's approval? No. Rather, what's happening here is that Jesus knows something the Pharisees don't understand, which is this. While Moses allowed Israelites to get divorced, there's no part of the Old Testament law that ever explicitly granted them a right to divorce. So the divorces that Moses permitted were actually outside of what the Torah allowed. So the premise of the Pharisees' argument in verse 7 is wrong. In verse 7, the Pharisees say, well, Moses commanded that there's a divorce law. But in fact, nowhere in the Torah does Moses ever command that. Now, it's true that in the Torah, there are a number of passages that regulate what divorced people may do, most of which are quite brief, and most of which say nothing about how divorce happened or when a divorce was justified. Friends, you never find a general divorce law in the Old Testament. In fact, the only passage in the whole Torah which talks about divorce at any length at all 
And the only passage which mentions the certificate of divorce the Pharisees talk about here is Deuteronomy 24. If you've got a Bible, I think you should see this for yourself. So turn over to Deuteronomy 24, and we're going to read the first four verses. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Say, wow, that's a lot. What's this saying? Okay, this is what this is saying. It's a, here's, here's a case that the law treats. A woman gets divorced, and she marries somebody else. And then for some other reason, her, her second marriage ends. These verses say, in that scenario, that woman is forbidden from remarrying her first husband. Okay. Why? Moses says, because of defilement. Okay. This same verb is used in Leviticus 18 to describe the results of adultery. So initially, this woman had married her first husband. They had sex. A one flesh union was formed, and then the marriage ended in divorce, and she remarried. And as she does so, now she's having sex with a man other than her living ex-husband, who she was initially joined to. And Moses says that's similar to adultery. It's not actually adultery under the Old Testament law. She's not liable to the death penalty as adulterers were, because she was divorced. But something similar to adultery has happened. The initial marital union has been breached by the new sexual union, so the first union cannot be resumed. That is the logic of Deuteronomy. Now, when we read this, at first we might say, hey, I don't know, the Pharisees look right here. I mean, Deuteronomy 24 sounds like it grants a right to divorce because it's talking about a certificate of divorce and the husband's kicking the wife out. But I think a close reading here shows that this passage is not prescribing or commanding divorce, which is the language the Pharisees used. Rather, it's only describing a hypothetical legal situation. If someone doesn't like his wife and divorces her by giving her a certificate, and if her second marriage ends, then, and here's the command, not the divorce, here's the command, then she cannot return to her first husband. So Deuteronomy 24 does not command divorce. Rather, it commands that people who have previously divorced cannot later remarry. Now, remember, I just said that this is the major passage that talks about divorce in the Torah. And this passage does not explicitly grant a right of divorce. So that means that there is no divorce law in the Torah. God never once in the Old Testament says, here's the kind of divorce I'm okay with and here's how you get it. He never says that once. The Torah never approved of divorce. So whatever divorces occurred in ancient Israel that Moses facilitated happened outside the sanction of God's word. And now, and now Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, 8, why Moses permitted those divorces. Because, he says, of hard-heartedness. Friends, when you get to a divorce, invariably at least one spouse, and usually both, show sinful obstinacy towards the other. They would not relent of their sin, and that's why they're demanding divorce. 
And Moses, seeing this again and again, these intractable, sinful people with hard hearts, eventually said, fine, you want a divorce, have one. But that was not something God intended or permitted. Now, if that's the case, and Jesus says that it is, why then did the Pharisees believe that the Old Testament law gave a right to divorce? Well, because after Moses and his generation died off, guess what? There were still hard-hearted married Israelites that wanted to get divorced. And they said, how can I get my divorce? And they looked to the law. And this thing in Deuteronomy 24 was the closest thing that looked like giving them instructions. And so they said, well, here it is. This is when God says I can get a divorce. But they were misreading. They were twisting the scripture. Say, wow, there's a lot of technical stuff about Deuteronomy. What should I take from this? Here's what you should take from this. God created marriage. God did not create divorce. Man created divorce. So now I think we understand Jesus' point back in verse 8 in Matthew 19. The Pharisees think Jesus' restrictive view of divorce is contrary to the law. But Jesus says, no, divorce was not the intent of the law. It was something Moses made up outside of the law. God's intention from the beginning was the lifelong union of one man and one woman. So having established this, Jesus repeats his view on divorce once more. But now he frames it a little differently. Look at Matthew 19, verse 9. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now notice two things here. First, Jesus frames the question of divorce and remarriage really seriously. He says that the person who gets divorced and marries somebody else commits adultery against their original spouse. Now that's different than Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, the idea was a remarried divorcee could not return to her first husband because of defilement, because the exclusive sexual union of the original marriage was ruptured. But Jesus says something different here. Jesus says now what's happening when you get divorced is not simply defilement. Now remarriage after divorce makes you guilty of adultery. It's an intensification. And we shouldn't be surprised that there's an intensification here. Because back in chapter 5, Jesus said that he has intensified the demands of the old law for his disciples. The law forbade murder. Jesus forbids anger. The law forbade lust. Forbade adultery. Jesus forbids lust. The law said this was only defilement. Jesus says, no, it's full adultery. In fact, not only does Jesus say that a person who divorces and remarries commit adultery, but he said back in Matthew 5.32, listen to this. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So not only does the person who initiates a divorce and remarries commit adultery, but when a husband divorced his wife, Jesus says you are stumbling her into adultery. Why? Well, because back then there weren't a lot of jobs for ladies in the first century to work. If you wanted to live as a woman in the first century, you had to get married. And if you've been divorced and you get remarried, Jesus says you're in adultery. More than that, Jesus says whoever marries a divorced woman also becomes an adulterer. So look at this terrible situation. Jesus is basically saying divorce is a fountainhead of adultery, ensnaring both spouses and their future spouses into grievous sin. And make no mistake, friends, this is a huge deal. Because just three verses before Jesus said these things in chapter 5, this is what he said, Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus says that about adultery in the heart, about a lustful look. Now, if the desire for adultery inwardly is enough to merit an eternity in hell, how much more so the actual act? See, friends, to Jesus, this is not trivial. Divorce and remarriage are deadly sins that court eternal ruin. But I want you to notice a second thing now about Matthew 19, 9, which is that despite this severe warning, Jesus does grant one exception to his general rule about divorce and remarriage, an exception for sexual immorality. And this is also found back in chapter 5 as well. Now, in Greek, this phrase, sexual immorality, is the word porneia. And when porneia is used in the New Testament without qualification, it is a general term that refers to any type of sexual sin. Okay, this is a broader term than the usual word that was used for adulterous intercourse. This is talking about any type of sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. And Jesus says, where porneia exists, this is an exception to the general rule forbidding divorce and remarriage. Now, this exception is highly debated. Some denominations and churches and Christians have observed that everywhere else in the New Testament where Jesus' view on divorce is articulated, this exception is not mentioned except in Matthew. And many people seem to have concluded from that fact that this exception really doesn't mean what it says. So there are lots of people out there who will say, actually, I don't think there's any justification for divorce, even if there's sexual immorality. Or they'll say, well, yes, this exception for porneia exists, but porneia here doesn't mean sexual immorality generally. They'll construe it really narrowly. They'll say, in this case only, it means premarital sex. Or in this case only, it means the sexual sins listed in Leviticus 18, incest, homosexuality, and interspecies sex. But they'll say it doesn't, it doesn't mean sexual immorality generally. Uh, there are lots of problems with this view. I'll give you two. First, even though this exception is found only in Matthew, how many times does Jesus have to say something for it to be authoritative, right? He says it twice in Matthew, so we should believe him. And second, there's no evidence that what Jesus means here by porneia is anything other than this word's usual meaning, which is a general term for sexual sin. You would never come up with the interpretation that says porneia doesn't mean sexual sin generally unless you had already concluded that you don't want to give effect to this instruction and you want to basically forbid all marriage and, or all divorce and remarriage. But friends, that's not how we interpret the Bible. We need to let the Bible speak and interpret its plain meaning. And when we do that, Jesus' ordinary rule is that divorce and remarriage constitute adultery. But when the cause of the divorce is porneia, is sexual sin, uh, then that, that is an exception to this rule. Uh, and then, uh, where that pornea exists, as in Deuteronomy 24, that sexual sin has ruptured the marital union and divorce is permissible. Now, some people will, will grant all of that and then they'll put down another argument. They'll say, well, yeah, Jesus says you can get divorced, but he doesn't say you can get remarried. However, the grammar in the Greek here seems to favor the idea that pornea is an exception to the whole sentence, not just the statement about divorce. Moreover, in Jesus' day, all Jews believed that if you were divorced, you had a right to remarry. There was no category of being divorced without a right of remarriage. So if Jesus means to now create that category, we would expect he would say that explicitly, which he doesn't. So I understand that sexual sin grants a right to both divorce 
and remarriage. But what kind of sexual sin grants this right? Lots of sexual sin out there, right? Well, I think we've got to read this exception in its context. Because the clear sense of Jesus' words in these passages is he's restrictive towards divorce. And yet I've known people that want to twist this verse to allow for a very permissive approach to divorce. Here's how their argument goes. They'll say, well, divorce is permitted where there's porneia. And porneia means any sexual sin. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says, looking on someone with lust in your heart makes you basically guilty of adultery. That's porneia. And everybody's looked on somebody with lust at some point. So everybody's guilty of porneia, so everybody can get out of their marriage. Okay, now to argue that is to take this line and try and turn it against the context, right? Jesus is being restrictive about divorce. So we cannot interpret this exception too broadly. I think we've got to understand only egregious sexual sin justifies divorce and remarriage. And here are some guidelines that I think are common sense. When the sexual sin involves more than one person, or if it involves criminal conduct, it probably justifies divorce. But those are only broad guidelines. Honestly, these situations always have to be examined case by case. Friend, if you are in a situation where sexual sin has occurred in your marriage and you are considering divorce, please talk to the elders. We'd love to pray with you and talk about a biblical and God-honoring solution to the situation you're in. All right, so that explains the exception here in verse 9. But we might ask, is this really the only exception, sexual immorality? Well, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul recognizes a second exception to this general rule forbidding divorce and remarriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. Paul says, To the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now, what Paul's basically saying when he says, I not the Lord, is this. He says, I'm going to give a command here. And the command I'm going to give relates to a situation that Jesus never addressed while he was on the earth. And Paul's an apostle. He's Jesus' recognized authoritative spokesman. So he can speak authoritatively to the situation he's about to address. And here it is. 1 Corinthians 7, 12. He says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. All right, the situation here is we have a religiously mixed marriage. Now, Jesus would never have spoken to this in his day because Jews were forbidden from marrying pagans. So this wasn't an issue Jesus would have had to speak to. But by the time of 1 Corinthians, this was a live issue. Because in Corinth, there were pagan couples, and then very often one of the people in the marriage would get saved and the other wouldn't. And the question is, are they supposed to continue being married now that there is this religious mixture in the marriage? After all, Paul says elsewhere, believers should not marry unbelievers. So should believers stay married to unbelievers? Well, Paul says religious incompatibility is not a ground for divorce. And here's why, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. This is what Paul says. Believing, friend, if you wind up in a religiously mixed marriage, your spouse, and if you have any kids, your kids are your most important mission field in life. You are a conduit of God's grace to your other family members. You must not flee from that. But, 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 
Okay, so the believer is not to initiate a divorce in a religiously mixed marriage. But if the unbeliever wants out, Paul literally says in the Greek, let him depart. It's a command. Let them go. Don't fight it. Now, what Paul seems to be talking about here is a situation in which the unbeliever wants to divorce the believer because of the believer's faith in Christ. A lot of people in the American church today try to claim that their divorce fits into this category when it really doesn't. They'll say, well, we got married, and I think my spouse is probably an unbeliever no matter what he says, and we got divorced, so it's 1 Corinthians 7. Well, wait a minute. Did you get married to someone knowing that they were an unbeliever? Did they marry you knowing that you were a believer? Is the separation related to your faith, or is it really about something else? But in the rare case where the divorce really is because one person got saved and the other one couldn't stand who they were now in Christ, Paul says this in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 7. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And I understand that to say that the believer may then remarry. Okay, so this is a second case where there is an exception to the general prohibition on divorce and remarriage in religiously mixed marriages where the unbeliever wants out because of the believer's faith. And those are the only two explicit biblical exceptions to the general prohibition against divorce and remarriage. Now when I say that, my guess is that over half of you in the room are thinking, well, what about abuse? I don't have time for a full discussion of this now. I preached two sermons on 1 Corinthians 7 back in 2020. And if you want to hear my full reasoning about this, I would commend those to you. But I do feel like I should restate my general conclusions here, just in case anybody here is in an abusive marriage. This is what I want you to know. The abuse of a spouse or child is outrageous sin. And if you or your child are the victim of physical or sexual abuse, you need to call the police, or you need to talk to our police officer who's outside after the service. And in addition to calling the police, if you are the victim of abuse, please tell the elders of this church or a friend in this church, because abuse is the church's business. I also want you to know you are under an obligation to protect yourself and your children from harm, and that means you need to withdraw from a dangerous environment. Now, I would say while you should certainly, earnestly desire reconciliation with your spouse, do not be lulled into a premature reconciliation with an abusive spouse just because of hollow words claiming repentance that are not backed up by deeds. I also want you to know that an abusive spouse gives overwhelming evidence that he or she is not a believer, according to Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6. And what that functionally means is that very often, an unrepentantly abusive spouse who winds up separated from his victim will start another relationship of a sexual nature, which will often give the victimized spouse grounds for divorce on the basis of porneia. But if that does not happen, and sometimes it doesn't, and if the abusive spouse continues to terrorize the victimized spouse, I think that as a last resort, there are inferences that can be drawn from the scripture that would support divorce. But because this is never explicitly stated in the scripture, we must be very careful in this area. Now, let me wind this up with some general applications about divorce. Number one, if you're married and having difficulties, remember God's intention is that your marriage should last a lifetime. If you're thinking about divorce, be honest. Has your spouse sinned against you sexually? 
in, a, in an egregious way? If so, Jesus says you have the option to divorce and remarry, but that's an option. It's not a requirement. You can choose to forgive and reconcile, but you can also divorce. If your spouse has not sinned against you sexually, is your spouse an unbeliever? If so, and they want to leave, 1 Corinthians 7 says you've got to let them. But if not, then whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, the Bible says you've got to remain married. Now, if despite all of those instructions, divorce still seems tempting to you, recognize that's exactly what it is. This is a temptation to grievous sin. This is an outgrowth of hard-heartedness and unrepentance in your life towards God and towards your spouse. Friends, you need to repent. Be thankful for your spouse. Your spouse is a gift from God. Be conciliatory and patient and loving. Husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Wives, submit to your husbands, provided that they're not commanding you to sin. Go to marital counseling. Commit to work this out. Get divorce out of your vocabulary. I think that we have great authority to say that is the will of God for your life. But if you have been divorced against your will, then I want to say to you, seek reconciliation and stand ready to forgive. If you were divorced for any reason other than the reasons we've talked about, I have to tell you, I don't see a right to remarriage in the Bible. Trust the Lord, pray for your ex, seek reconciliation. If you have been divorced and your ex enters into a sexual relationship with someone else, or if they get married or if they die, then I think you are free to remarry. But 1 Corinthians 7 says only marry another believer. Third, if you've sinned in this area, and I know many people in this room have, if you have divorced someone for reasons that don't fit within the exceptions we've described, or if you remarried when you shouldn't have, then repent. It's very easy to be self-righteous in this area and say, well, Jesus, you don't understand. My situation was uniquely bad. Or, you know, that happened a long time ago, and I don't dwell on the past. But Luther said the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. Have you ever really repented of your sins in these areas? You say, well, what's that look like? Let me tell you what it doesn't look like. If you're single and your ex is remarried, don't go break up their new marriage. If you have remarried, don't try to repent of your remarriage by undoing your current marriage. You cannot undo the past sins of unbiblical divorce and remarriage by doing more unbiblical divorce and remarriage. So what should you do? Confess your sin to those you've wronged. Confess your sins to Jesus. Tell him you know that, that, that your sin was wrong, that it shouldn't have happened, and turn away from it and receive God's forgiveness and then move forward. Don't get hung up on the past. If you truly confessed and turned from your sin, Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus makes all things new, friends. There is grace and mercy and forgiveness because of the cross. And more than that, there is redemption. And if you're married today, I want to say to you, be faithful to the one you're with and know that God can redeem your new marriage and your new family for his glory and his good purposes. Fourth, I want to say to the church here, there are corporate implications. Friends, when people have marital difficulties, and they will, we need to walk with them through their hardships. We need to encourage those who are suffering wrongs in their marriage. We need to admonish and corporately discipline those who unrepentantly mistreat their spouses. i got to tell you, there will be times in the life of this church when one, when one spouse says, I want a divorce, and the other one doesn't, and it's forced on the one who doesn't. When that happens, we need to publicly vindicate the spouse that tried to save their marriage. We do not want to be blaming them for what happened. We want to support them. 
And generally, friends, we need to show the grace and mercy of Christ to anyone who has divorced and remarried, even wrongfully if they're repentant. And we do not want to hold divorce over anybody's heads and treat them as a second-class citizen. Now, I know I told you this was going to be a long sermon. I do have one more point, but I don't think it's that long. So bear with me here, and I think we'll get through this in just a minute. But we come to our last point now, which is Jesus on singleness. All right, so Jesus has vanquished the Pharisees now. But our passage is not yet over, because now the disciples speak. And, you know, they would have grown up in first century Judaism hearing that divorce is no big deal. If you don't like the one you're with, you can get another. And now Jesus tells them that's not how this works. And upon hearing this, they have this terrible response. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They have commitment phobia. Jesus says this is going to last the whole, the whole life. They say, I don't want any part of it. But this actually becomes an opportunity for Jesus to take the conversation in a different direction. And now he talks about singleness. Verse 11. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. Well, what saying is Jesus talking about? The saying the disciples just made, that it's better not to marry, that it's better to stay single. The disciples might have meant this in a kind of bitter, whiny way, but Jesus says, no, 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 there is actually great value in singleness. And yet the single life is a challenging life. It is not a life that every believer can take on. But it is a life of great spiritual significance, as Jesus now explains. Look at verse 12. He says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, as Jesus talks about singleness, he frames his discussion around this word eunuch. And in first century Judaism, this word eunuch was used to describe two categories of people. The first were men who had been deliberately castrated by others. This was very common in the ancient world. Men who served royal families and spent time around royal women were often castrated, and criminals were often castrated. And those who were intentionally castrated were called eunuchs. But a second group of people were also called eunuchs, and this would be people who, as a result of a genetic defect, were in some way physically marred or not capable of ordinary sexual function. Now, both of these groups together were called eunuchs in first century Judaism because of their inability to uh, have sex and reproduce. And because of this incapacity, they would not have been seen as marriageable in the first century. But to these two groups, Jesus now adds a third category of eunuchs, a category previously unknown, as he speaks of those who become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus talking about? Well, some people have claimed that Jesus here is talking about an expectation that he has that some of his followers would castrate themselves in an example of Christian devotion. Some people tried this in the early church. As Jesus said, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, Cut it, cut it off and cast it away. And seeking relief from the temptation of lust, some people castrated themselves. But there's a huge problem with that, which is that Jesus said back in chapter 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts, adultery, and sexual immorality. You cannot cure lust with castration. You can only defeat your sin by having a new heart. And so as Jesus talks about eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, I don't think we should understand this about castration at all. Rather, I think what Jesus is saying is, Within Judaism, there's two types of people that don't get married, and now let me tell you about a third. He's talking here about singleness. People who will be able to accept the idea that it is not 
that it's better not to marry because of their dedication to God's kingdom. People who resolve to remain single and celibate, like a eunuch, as a spiritual discipline and a way of life. Now, we might be surprised that singleness is commended in this way in the Bible. Because in the American church, we, we hold marriage in very high regard, and we should. Hebrews 13 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. 1 Corinthians 7 calls marriage a grace gift from God. But I think in our zeal to hold marriage high, we often hold singleness too low. I've seen churches where adult singles are made to feel like second-class citizens, where they're outnumbered, where they feel like I can't talk to anybody here because everybody in my age group has, has spouses and kids. It can be isolating and disheartening. It can make you feel like an outcast, even if nobody's trying to make you feel like an outcast. And this is often compounded by the way that people encourage single believers. It's not good for man to be alone, they quote, ignoring passages like this one that say singleness is good. And all of this pressure and emphasis on marriage, I fear, often leads single believers, and especially young believers, to the conclusion they just need to get married as quickly as possible to anybody who claims to be a Christian, imagining this is going to make their lives better and help them fit in. And tragically, people in that situation often find out that they didn't have enough discernment to recognize a, a true believer and a spouse, and they find out later they married somebody that made a false profession. And they wind up in a disaster um, because they were pushed into marriage. Friends, I think in the church we do single believers and young believers a disservice when we only ever tout marriage and we ignore what the Bible says about singleness. Singleness is not a curse. Singleness is not an inferior state. The Bible tells us that just like marriage, we've got to hold singleness in high regard. 1 Corinthians 7 uses the same language of marriage as singleness. And what that tells us is then every believer has a gift from God. If you're a married believer, you have the gift of your spouse. And if you're a single believer, you have the gift of singleness. And singleness can have some wonderful advantages. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. Singleness allows for a life that's uniquely focused on God and the work he's tasked us to perform for his kingdom. A life unclouded by the demands of supporting and caring for a family. So single people, redeem the time that you're single for well, for God's glory. Don't just sit around moping saying, I wish I had a spouse. No, live a life of godly celibacy and leverage your free time and your lack of obligations to work hard for the Lord. Now, some singles will remain single only for a season. Some will remain single for the rest of their lives. A life of singleness is not for everyone. As Jesus says in verse 12 of our passage, only some people will be able to do this for their whole life. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, to the unmarried, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So we need to know that today, God's intention for everyone is not marriage. And God's intention for everyone is not singleness. We need to see biblical singleness as a good thing. We need to be present and encouraging our singles because they're walking a difficult road. And when we encourage them, we need to encourage them to redeem the time well and not just always be hounding them about getting married. All right, to conclude, we've seen what Jesus has to say about some really controversial stuff today. But in the end, I want you to remember two things. First, 
It's not enough for us to just adopt Jesus' perspective about gender, marriage, and divorce and think that we're okay with them. There are people today who say, I'm against transgenderism and marriage is only for one man and one woman and you know, divorce shouldn't be happening like it is. And those people may not know Christ, okay? I think so often we look at the entailments and we say, well, if I'm good on the entailments, I'm good with God. No, friend, you need to repent and believe in Jesus. That's the only way for you to be saved. But second, if you have trusted in Jesus, then yes, we must believe what Jesus says about these things. And we need to offer the hope of Jesus and his gospel to those who are deceived because he is the only hope for those who are perishing. May God give us courage and clarity to stand for his truth in these evil times.